Okay, welcome everyone. Uh, again, we are recording this program. My apologies for the delay. Uh, just a quick note, today's program, usually our programs are uh, general and applicable to everybody, whether you have residents uh, or, or, or in a nursing home uh, or are interested in anything in or out of New York. This program is particularly focused on New York, just as an FYI. Uh, we're looking at staffing and ownership and the quality of care in New York State nursing homes. Uh, this is certainly something that others can do in, in other states. I was just talking to someone this morning on the Hill, actually, who was interested in um, uh, in his state. So it's something that we'd be happy to provide some uh, input to you for or some technical assistance down the road if you're out of New York. But um, I just want to let everyone know this is this program today is focused specifically on the results for New York State. So a little bit about the Long-Term Care Community Coalition, um, LTCCC. We are a nonprofit organization. We're entirely dedicated to improving care and quality of life for people who live in nursing homes and in assisted living. We're also home to the Long-Term Care Amazon Program for the Hudson Valley, the local or what we call the regional program um, for the Hudson Valley in New York, which we're very proud of and um, which um, is very helpful for our advocacy as well. We do policy analysis and systems advocacy both in New York and nationally, and more and more of recent years we've been doing uh, things like this, trying to educate consumers and families, long-term care ombudsmen, um, state agency people, and uh, people in Congress, and of course, in the state legislature to make people more aware of what's going on in nursing homes and assisted living and to help them understand and gain insights into uh, what is going on and uh, in terms of resident care, quality of life, living with dignity, etc. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of those issues coming up. I've been the executive director at LTCCC since 2005 and I joined in November of 2000. So a little bit about today's program. As I often do, I'm going to start with the brief background on the uh, nursing home law and the standards for nursing home care, and then I'm going to get right to the results of our um, study finding. We did essentially two studies, one that looked at the relationship of staffing to quality of care, and the other one that looked at the relationship of ownership to quality of care. And then I'm going to finish up with some useful resources to, for those of you who want to dig a little bit deeper uh, than what I discussed today on this program. So background on the laws and standards, and forgive me if you've been to prior programs, because a lot of this we discussed before, but I think it just provides an important context. Um, so the nursing home system, and again, here we're talking about the federal system. Uh, every single nursing home is required to abide by the 1987 nursing home reform law as well as other federal laws. Now, states can have additional protections for the nursing home residents, but no state can have less protection. So anything that I talk about, any material that you see on our website, which is nursinghome411.org, uh, it always is talking about federal protections because that's the vast majority of protections for nursing home residents. If I'm talking about a state, I will, or we will certainly mention that specifically in the um, whatever the material is or whatever program we're doing, but I just wanted to make clear to everybody that everything that we that we talk about 
uh, it really relates to the standards of care for every single nursing home resident in the United States who is in a licensed facility. Excuse me. By that, I mean licensed under Medicare and or Medicaid. Importantly, though, as I note here at the end, that whether a per individual is on Medicare, whether individuals on Medicaid, whether the private pay, insurance pay, uh, their insurance is paying for it, et cetera, it does not matter at all. All of the protections that we talk about, including uh, discharge and transfer, including right to care staff, including right to other services, um, are irrespective of who's paying for their care. All the standards go to every single individual in the facility. That's, again, how the system works. I'm just going to repeat it because I am continuing to be surprised by how many people, including, unfortunately, too many nursing home owners, too many um, surveyors uh, don't seem to be fully cognizant of this, to put it nicely, but that if you are in a nursing home that's licensed under Medicare and Medicaid, no matter who pays for your care, you are entitled to the same quality of services, the same amount of staffing, etc. So a little bit about the federal requirements. Now, as uh, as again, those of you who have been on our programs before know uh, or heard me talk, the Nursing Reform Law, to me, it's a really special law because it's not, uh, unlike other laws, for instance, you know, laws or regulations regarding uh, how much how much lead a, you know, gas can, you know, gasoline can, can put out or how much pollution a car can emit, et cetera. The nursing home reform law is focused on the resident. And this is, it's, it's so important because I know it, it's too often a disconnect from what we see, but we're always trying to bring it back to, to what the law requires and what we have a right to expect as residents and families and those working with residents. That the law talks about that every resident has the right to receive the care and the quality of life services that he or she needs to attain and maintain his or her highest practicable physical, emotional, and social well-being. Now, it's, I know it's a, a mouthful, practicable, but it doesn't mean practical. It doesn't mean that, well, the nursing home wants to invest or you know, pay this much for its staff, or it's saying it's having trouble hiring more staff, and so this is what's practical for them to provide. No. What it means is that every single nursing home resident is to receive the care and services so that he or she can achieve what is practicable for them, what they are able to do. Um, and that is not just clinically uh, or physically, but it's also emotionally and in, in terms of emotional and social well-being as well. So, you know, what does that mean? That means that if I come into a nursing home and I can walk to the bathroom with assistance, the law requires that the nursing home have sufficient staffing so that when I ring my call bell, someone comes in a timely manner and helps me go to the bathroom. It means that I am not put into a diaper because the facility is saying there's not enough staff. So let me just stop. I know uh, from speaking to many, many family members and family councils over the years that this is a source of consternation for people because it's too often not what they are actually experiencing. And I just want to say I understand that. Uh, I've been a family member 
I was a family member last year. I was a family member a couple of years ago. I've been a family member a number of times uh, of a resident that is over the course of my life. And I've seen both good and bad in my own experience. Uh, and I know that it is challenging and frustrating to hear that, you know, some of these rights and to realize that they're, or to understand that they're not being realized for uh, myself if I'm a resident or for my resident if I'm a family member or an omnizen. However, I think it's so important for us to understand that, to advocate for that, that if you're not seeing that, ask for it. And if you're, if you ask for it and your request is not responded to in terms of these or any other residents' rights, then file a complaint with the Department of Health or speak to your legislature or both. Make a quick phone call to your local legislature's office and say this is what is going on because if we don't do that, things will never change. As, you know, as frustrating as this is, and again, I've been a family member. I've seen for people I've, I love these things not happening, and it's painful. I understand that. Um, but if we don't know what our rights are and if we don't speak out to get them realized, then they will never be realized. So that, I think, is, is something that obviously I think is important. That's why I'm here today, and I hope that um, that makes sense and it is, it is somewhat usable for others as well. Uh, I want to, especially now, because so much is going on in terms of the, the federal regulations and standards and their implementation, uh, I just wanted to include a timeline here. So, as I mentioned before, the nursing reform law passed in 1987. It took about four years for them to develop, uh, for the federal government to develop regulations to implement the law. So the law with the standards I just came out, with the rights that I, that I just mentioned, excuse me, came out in 1987. In 1991 is when the regulations were put into place that spelled out what the expectations are. They spelled out expectations in terms of not using physical restraints, not tying people into their wheelchairs, not, uh, it, it, it spelled out expectations in terms of uh, having appropriate activities, having food that is appealing, et cetera. You know, all the things that are concerns that unfortunately we still have. So those regulations came out in 1991. In addition, there were some provisions in the Affordable Care Act in 2010, the so-called Obamacare, that relate to elder justice and nursing home transparency, and they're, they're important as well, that uh, regarding reporting abuse and neglect, regarding uh, having some better information about nursing home care, which some of which made these studies that we're going to talk about today possible. So that was 2010. In 2016, for the first time since 1991, CMS said that they were going to revise the federal regulations. Actually, I take that back. They said in 2014 or 15, it took them about a year and a half to actually come out with those regulations. So those regulations came out in 2016. They did not in any way change residents' rights. They did not in any way change the expectations under the reform law. What most of the changes were really to clarify, were to bring, bring things up to speed, with 2016, you know, our understanding of how people live when they're older or how people live when they're living or, and their expectations when they're living with disabilities, including, you know, the significant disabilities that would bring someone into a nursing home, our understanding of dementia care, et cetera. So these were things were all fine-tuned over the years. I don't want to spend too much time getting into it today. Um, 
through memos, et cetera. And 2016, what essentially what CMS, the Census for Medicare and Medicaid Services, did was they cleaned it up and they, they put out the, the um, new regulations in 2016. There were a few ways in which there were some significant changes. For instance, nursing homes as of 2016 have to report the um, their discharges to the long-term care ombudsman. That was to address a persistent and growing issue of people being discharged inappropriately from nursing homes. It's something that we've talked about in prior programs um, and some other things, but most of it was really some of the things that were you know, more substantial, but really most of it was pretty much part of what nursing homes were already expected to be doing. Uh, now, just to give you a sense of what's going on, so the regulations came out in 2016. Most of them, because there were really no substantial changes, they went into effect immediately. Um, there was three phases, however, that was phase one in 2016. In 2017, some additional changes that were a little bit more, um, considered to be, require some more training or some more facility understanding, they came into effect in 2017. And then the last, phase three, is actually 2019, um, this year, uh, this November. And that includes things like having a um, what's called the quality, um, a quality, a quality assurance and performance improvement um, program, uh, different things that were a little bit more substantial. That it took CMS a little bit more time to develop guidance for, et cetera. Uh, so, but not again, residents' rights have not changed. The right to quality of care, the rights under the reform law, the essential rights of dignity, of respect, of good care of highest practicable well-being for the individual have not changed at all. Um, and then what happened after 2016, um, of course we had the election 2016 and the Trump administration, just be before the president even took office, nursing home lobby associations started writing and started publicizing their position to the president. And they said things like, um, you know, one of them said, you know, we love caring for the nation's elderly, but the rules are just too burdensome. And so immediately the Trump administration took steps to reduce those burdens. Now, I just want to make clear we are not a partisan organization by any means. I'm just relating things that have obviously happened. Uh, as you know, as I'm sure you know, that you know the Trump administration has taken other steps in other sectors of the of the country, from the environment, et cetera, to reduce regulations. And so they've certainly been doing that in terms of nursing homes. Uh, for the past two years, they've reduced um, enforcement protocols. They've in, reduced the um, how how states are supposed to be imposing penalties for <coughs> substandard care, abuse, and neglect, et cetera. Some of these were essentially less formal, but this past July, they issued a sweeping proposal to change um, all the federal regulations over again. So, again, quick, very quickly, the regulations were just redone in 2016. Now the administration is, has proposed to make major changes to the regulations once again, and the changes are all predicated on making things uh, easier for the nursing home industry. The CMS now refers to the industry as its customer instead of the residents as their customers. Uh, it says you know, the industry, we want to do things for our customers, and they mean the 
the nursing home industry by making things easier, by having less accountability when the problems are found, including you know serious abuse or even uh, um, uh, you know death due to medical malpractice or neglect. They um, want to reduce the accountability for that. I mean, it's all out there. We actually just issued joint comment with the Center for Medicare Advocacy yesterday uh, was the deadline for uh, for for the public to comment on these proposed regulations, and those are available on our website as well. They're they're right at the top because we just added them last night. Um, so there's a lot going on right now, and uh, a lot to be concerned about if you are interested in nursing home care or well-being. Uh, so you know the. To get back to the nursing home reform law and just the basic standards, the basic standards are good. Again, it's that highest practicable, and every single standard um, gets at that. Even if the administration's changes go through, the uh, in terms of accountability, the essential standards are still there, and they all come back to that highest practicable. If I can eat on my own, then or if I can eat with help then I should be given food. I shouldn't be put on a feeding tube. If I can go to the bathroom uh, on my own or with help, I should get that help. If I want to go to church or if I want to um, participate in, a, in something outside of the nursing home, bingo should not be the only activity that the nursing home is providing. It has to be resident-focused, uh, and that still exists. So, you know, this always raises the question, if the standards are so good, why are so many residents, um, you know, suffering every day? Um, you know, people, um, mo you know, most people that I hear from, they would, you know, they would rather die than go to a nursing home. They, um, people avoid nursing homes, unfortunately, at all costs. It doesn't have to be that way, but, but that's the, um, I would say, that, you know, it's fair to say the general consensus. And why is that? Why is it that if we have strong standards and we have expectations and it's spelled out, um, for all these different issues, from food service to to um, activities to you know uh, maintaining continence and being able to go to the bathroom, um, why is there is there that that disconnect between the standards and the experience of so many residents? And essentially, uh, you know, from our view and, and the data support this, that in the absence of enforcement of those standards, nursing homes can provide substandard care with impunity. So if you are, you know, there's, there are many nursing homes out there that are good, that are really dedicated to uh, take seriously the, the care to which um, they've been entrusted. They um, have a mission to provide good care, whether they're a for-profit or not-for-profit. Um, but on the other hand, if you don't provide good care, if you provide substandard care, if there's neglect, if there's abuse, um, even when it's serious, too often there are no consequences. So the result is that um, you know nursing homes. If you're not punished for substandard care and you don't have that personal or professional mission to provide good care, then you could you know essentially do what you want. And that brings us to the studies that I'm going to talk about today. That because we had these growing concerns about you know what's going on with ownership, what's going on with accountability, uh, you know growing concerns about what's going on both nationally in New York in terms of the quality of care, the safety of care, accountability for abuse and neglect, is that we did these studies to uh, try to get into and see what is going on. And the first one I'm going to talk about is the one that we did that related to staffing levels and quality of nursing home care. So 
I mean, I think most people understand or, or expect that if there's more staff, care tends to be better. Studies have certainly borne that out. So we know that from our personal experience. We know that from what we've seen in, you know, I think for um, you know, virtually everyone I've ever spoken to um, knows that from their own experiences in a nursing home. And again, studies have borne that out, that when, when you don't have the staff there, that too often residents face neglect, they can be abused. It becomes a dangerous situation, frankly, for both residents and for care staff. And um, you may not know this, but I was surprised to read it myself, but being a, a caregiver, being a nurse aide, is one of the most dangerous professions in our country uh, in terms of injuries that, that those individuals receive. And of course, too often, being a caregiver in a nursing home, especially when there's low staffing, it becomes a very demeaning place to work as well. Uh, so it's not healthy too often for either the resident or for the caregiver. So a lot of this stuff is really, uh, I would say, you know, is intuitive. You know, of course, if you have more staffing, then there's going to be better care. The reason why we did this, um, this study, though, is one, it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to have the data to show it. Uh, and also, and I'll talk about this on the next slide. Before, sorry, before I move on, though, I want to just mention that there are no federal minimum standards and that New York State is one of the minority of states in the country without a minimum staffing standard also. Just an important point. So uh, we're talking about staffing and why we focused on staffing is that as of 2016, CMS began requiring that nursing homes report their staffing every single day. So it used to be up until 2016, nursing homes could report, excuse me, would report once a year for the two-week period prior to their annual survey, and there was no auditing of that information whatsoever. So, you know, we heard from family members, we heard from ombudsmen that, you know, facilities would beef up their staffing around the time that they were expecting their annual survey, but also there were data that showed that, that, you know, there were report, you know, that, that there were academic reports indicating that there were significant fluctuations of staffing at different times of the year. And also, as many of you I'm sure are aware, who live in or work in a nursing home, is that there are significant fluctuations with staffing at night and on weekends and on holidays. So what CMS started to do is require that, that facilities report on a quarterly basis all of their staffing, their RNs, their LPNs, their CNAs, their um, uh, and, and a range of other staff, including uh, directors of nursing, including medical directors, including administrators, including um, social work staff, et cetera, that they have to report, be reported based upon auditable payroll records for every single day of the year, and that reporting takes place on a quarterly basis. So every quarter, at the end of the quarter, facilities have to send in the, this data based upon payroll records and it's for every single day. Now that information is available on CMS's website. It's called data.medicare.gov. So if you go there, you will, you will see, you can see the quarterly um, data, you know, the data for the quarter, and it'll show for every single nursing home, there's 15,000 nursing homes in the country, every single day of the quarter. So there are 
a lot of data. It's, it's an enormous file. What we do, as I note here in the orange, is that every quarter after CMS publishes it on data.medicare.gov, we download those data, we divide them into state files, we average the data so you can see what is going on in any nursing home that's in compliance with its requirements. About 95, 96% of nursing homes now are in compliance with this reporting requirement. So it's not every nursing home, but virtually every nursing home. You can see what their average staffing is for the last quarter for all of the direct care staff, the RNs, LPNs, and CNAs, as well as a range of other staff. So we provide that on our website every quarter. Um, I welcome you to use it. The files are searchable and, of course, downloadable, so you can use that to see what is going on in your nursing home, what is go how your nursing home compares to others in your county or in your city uh, or in the state. And that's, again, for every state. So if you have a loved one who's outside of New York, uh, or, you know, et cetera, you can use that as well. So that was really useful for us. And like for the first time, these data are available. We can actually see who is in the nursing home and make an assessment based upon that. Uh, it's just much better, much more accurate information about what's going on. So we reviewed the data and compared them to different criteria. So what we did is we looked at the staffing for each nursing home, and then we also downloaded data for each nursing home. Uh, Sean Wang, who is our fellow, did a lot of this research. He's not on the call today, unfortunately, but he, um, he, he did a lot of the background re research for this, looking to see and crunching those numbers, because it's it was a lot to put together, but hopefully, and we'll show the table at the end, it's pretty um, useful information for those of us who are interested in what's going on in our community or want to raise these issues either with our nursing home or with our legislators, et cetera. So number one, um, pressure ulcers. So we looked at staffing versus the rate of pressure ulcers. So very quickly, I just want to give some background. Pressure ulcers, I, you know, they're also known as bed sores or pressure sores or decubitus ulcers. Uh, and I'm going to read this. There are wounds caused by unrelieved pressure on the skin. They usually develop over bony prominences, such as the elbows, heels, the buttocks, the back of the head, uh, etc. Pressure ulcers are serious medical conditions and one of the important measures of the quality of clinical care in a nursing home. That is from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and we have the citations for everything I talk about here in the full report, again, which is on our website. While some pressure ulcers are unavoidable, both research and experience indicate that in the vast majority of cases, appropriate identification and mitigation of risk factors can prevent or minimize pressure ulcer formation. And I put the citation for that here. That's from the Journal of Wound Ostomy and Continence Nursing. So, and, you know, why do I include these things here? Because I don't want you to come, come away and say, oh, this was just, you know, some advocate's uh, opinion of what should be. These are what experts uh, are saying is the expectation for and, and the standard of care for assuring that people don't develop pressure ulcers and if a pressure ulcer does develop that it is treated and mitigated as soon as possible. So despite this, despite the fact that CDC says that, that the nursing homes are almost always avoidable or treatable, um, the, despite that, according to federal data, close to 9% of New York State nursing home residents have an unhealed pressure ulcer today. Uh, and furthermore, for us here in New York, 
we are among the, the worst states in the country in respect to keeping residents free from pressure ulcers. It is um, something that has always, you know, really bothered me because it is, you know, even, uh, and I'm not a clinician, I'm, I'm an attorney and I'm an advocate, etc. cetera, uh, but that's why I included these things here. I know how to read and I look these things up and I saw what was going on. When you think about that and you think about the suffering and how dangerous a pressure ulcer is uh, and how painful it can be, why is this happening? Why is this such a, a big problem that 8.6%, that that's just under 10% of the residents in our state have a pressure ulcer? Um, that to me is just such an indication that we have a, a pretty serious problem. So what we did was we looked at staffing. So, and what we found was is that as the total staffing rate increases, pressure ulcer rates tend to decrease. So you see, and we have a graphic here of the line sloping down. This is available on our website as well. So if you look at just where the majority of facilities lie in terms of the number of staffing outings, four and six hours, per resident per day, you can see that the, the um, rate of pressure ulcers goes down. So we have you know, a fair amount of facilities, excuse me, that only have about two hours of staff time per day to around four, and then, you know, but you have some in the state that have more than four, I think it's about 25%. But as they have more, you see that the rate goes down. Um, and there's a little bit of a bump there at the end, but you can see there's only a few facilities. So we have 600, uh, I think about 610 or so facilities in New York State. Uh, there's only a few, very few, that have um, seven hours or more. So that, that, you know, we kind of dis disregard that. I didn't want to pull it out because I wanted to give you all the information and not have people say that I was cherry picking, but you can see the general line of where the most of the 600 plus nursing homes are is that the more staffing you have, the better. And if you have over four hours of, of care staff for every minute, essentially more than that, you are have a significantly less likelihood of having pressure ulcers. So this is something for us to think about as advocates, as people who are talking to families and residents, if we're not a family member or resident ourselves, is that this is something to think about when you are looking for a nursing home. And if you're in a nursing home or if you're advocating uh, in a nursing home to say, well, what is going on here? How does my nursing home compare to other nursing homes? Next, um, we looked at the results of staffing versus health inspection results. So I just want to give a little bit of a background. The state survey agencies, which in New York is the state, New York State Department of Health, they are required to inspect nursing homes on average once every 12 months and within a window of nine to 15 month time frame. So they could, so that gives them uh, two things. One, the nine to 15 month time frame says that, you know what, if you have a facility that has um, the signaling that there are some problems there in terms of maybe a high pressure ulcer rate or a low staffing rate, that maybe you'd want to get in there more frequently than once a year. Whereas if you have a facility that is, you know, seems to be doing much better, maybe you would, you would come in, you know, 12 months to, you know, 13 months or whatever. So it gives them some flexibility, but also that window is important from our perspective because it is supposed to make the inspection not be a surprise. That these, excuse me, to be a surprise, pardon me. So it's not to be expected. That the facility shouldn't expect that when they, you know, then they had, they were inspected last April, that they're going to be inspected this April again, or, or, or March or April. Because that's what we too often see, is that they become very routine that the 
the surveys are there around the same time every year, but this tells you that it's not supposed to be that way, that it really is supposed to be that window, so that it's a surprise inspection. So there's some things that, that nursing home surveyors are expected to evaluate, including whether the facility has enough staff, whether the staff has sufficient um, skills and experience to providing the care that residents need. They look at medication management. They look to see how well residents are protected from abuse and neglect. They look at food service and food storage, etc. cetera. Uh, and then based upon what the surveyors find, based upon the inspection results, they are assigned a, uh, a star rating on nursing home compare. One is the lowest and five is the highest. And this is just for health inspection or health survey results. Um, the five-star system is all one to five, but right now we're just focused on health inspection results. So this is what we did is we looked at the, again, each nursing home's staffing rating, um, staffing hours, excuse me, versus their health inspection ratings. And what we found was that there was a strong cor correlation between having more staff and having a better rating on health inspections. Again, not a surprise, hopefully, but a good result is that we want, we want to be showing that. We want to be, be um, to see that there is uh, that relationship, to have proof that, that there's that relationship. It makes the argument really for everyone, including the nursing home industries, that look, if you had more staffing, you'd be doing better on your star ratings and maybe getting more people who are interested in coming here, et cetera. Next, we looked at antipsychotic drugging. Another important criteria we, you know, we have felt, and, and of course this is borne out by research as well, in terms of the quality of care for nursing homes. Um, I know that many people are aware of this, but there are many that are not, but antipsychotic drugging is a very, very serious issue for nursing home residents in New York and nationally. Um, too often, residents are given antipsychotic drugs to, as a form of what we call chemical restraint, in, order, in other words, to make them the resident easier to provide care for. So too often we hear about, you know, there's not enough staff to provide care for residents, so they're given antipsychotic drugs, so just to make them sleepy, to make them easier to provide care for. Um, quite often, or too often, we also hear about people, um, uh, residents with dementia, being given antipsychotic drugs because they have so-called behavioral symptoms, maybe they're crying or, or they're scratching other people uh, or they are not cooperative to, to get dressed or to take a bath, etc. And rather than providing the care that that individual needs and addressing what he or she is expressing, which is the standard of care for dementia, um, too many residents will give uh, nursing will, will give too many nursing homes will give residents an antipsychotic drug. This is a, a, a really big issue, as I said before, when um, the Inspector General came out with a study in 2011. They found that I think it was over 25 percent of residents were receiving an antipsychotic drug. Um, our, um, according to the the criteria that CMS uses when they risk adjust for potentially appropriate uses of these drugs, less than 2% of the population will ever have a diagnosis of 
uh, schizophrenia, Tourette syndrome, or Huntington's disease, which are the three categories of people who are uh, not included when the risk adjustment is made. I hope that's clear. Uh, I just don't want to spend too much time getting into this because we do a lot of work in this area. And of course, we're happy to answer questions if you have them and I recommend going to the website for more information. But essentially, uh, as I note here, these drugs have an FDA black box warning not to use with elderly people with dementia. They are not clinically indicated for treatment of the symptoms of dementia, period, period. That's it. No, 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 no. When someone has so-called behavior, you know, dementia-related behaviors, et cetera, they are expressing something. They are trying to say something's going on. Maybe they have back pain. Maybe they're constipated. Maybe they're bored. Maybe they're scared. Uh, and they're not able to say, I'm scared, I'm bored, I'm constipated, uh, et cetera. So they, they do, they, they, they're expressing themselves in the best way or what they think, of, you know, what, what could be the most effective way as possible, whether it be crying or, or, or et cetera, it's having some kind of so-called behavioral or psychological symptom. That is not a reason to give an antipsychotic drug. Uh, it's certainly not a reason to give an antipsychotic drug for a, any extended period of time. There are cases where it's an emergency situation where someone may be harming, uh, harming him or herself or, or harmful to others, um, and at that point there might be a need to give someone a sedative, uh, perhaps an antipsychotic drug, but the standard of care, which every single nursing home is expected to understand and to practice, is that if someone receives an antipsychotic drug, two things are supposed to happen. One is that immediately the facility staff is working to do a non-pharmacological approach, i.e., as I was just mentioned before, find out well, what is actually what is a, that person trying to express? Are they bored? Are they? Do they have a stomachache? Do they have a backache? Do they have a urinary tract infection? What, whatever it is, looking at both clinical issues or for the possibility of clinical issues as well as psychosocial issues. And secondly, is that they're supposed to be doing um, gradual dose reduction. These are the standards of care that every nursing home agrees to provide. And again, we have a dementia care advocacy toolkit on our website. We have a lot of information. So I'm going to move on from there, but I just wanted to kind of let everyone know because I'm still um, chagrined, to say, to say the least, or to put it nicely, by what I see out there in terms of antipsychotic drugging in nursing homes in our state. Uh, and our, our rate here is generally lower than the rest of the country, but it varies greatly. I mean, some nursing homes are using very little. Some of them are using a lot. And it is a very serious issue for the residents and a very serious violation of standards of care. So what we found here was actually somewhat similar to what we found with pressure ulcers is that there is a negative relationship between total staffing, hours per resident day, and antipsychotic drugging. In other words, the more staff, the higher the staffing is, the less chance that someone was going to receive an antipsychotic drug. So think about that. You know, so many facilities over the years have argued, well, you know, we're, we're providing, you know, the best care we can. That's not a legitimate excuse. Or, you know, we're doing the right thing. But if you see that the correlation of or the chance of being given an antipsychotic drug doesn't depend as much upon the individual, but where the individual is living, what nursing home he or she is in, well, that is really striking. And that's what we're seeing here. 
um, that if you have if the nursing home has higher staffing, there is a, a less chance that their residents will be given antipsychotic drugs. Why? Because they have you know hopefully have the staff there that is able to take the time to see what is going on with their residents. And again, you know, nursing homes, you know, say, you know, we have a hard time hiring staff. Um, there's no staff out there. Um, we're doing the best we can. No. Um, if you're a nursing home, you're promising this care. You're paid to provide this level of care. If you don't have enough staff, why are you continuing to take in more residents? No other business would be allowed to just take in more money and not produce more. Why are we allowing nursing homes, uh, you know, some nursing homes to do that? I'm going to go on to the second study that we did, and this looked particularly at ownership. And I'll tie this up at the end. I'll show you, you can see where, uh, where we have some of the data that you can look up your own nursing home or nursing homes again in your community. But I, um, uh, I, I think this is also a really important area because we have seen uh, over the years that there is increasing numbers of for-profit ownership, both in New York and nationally. Now, in, in New York, we, we generally have family-owned or limited liability company chains. They tend to be, tend to be excuse me, smaller chains. And other parts of the country, we have um, larger corporate chains. We don't have that in New York. Uh, but there's a couple of things here that are important. One is that overall, now there are good for-profits and there are bad for-profits, there are good not-for-profits and there are bad not-for-profits, but overall, non-profit nursing homes, and I'm including there those that are owned by the government, like that, the county nursing homes that we have in, in New York, they tend to have higher staffing levels and they also tend to put more resources into resident care. And by that, I mean that the nursing homes get reimbursed through Medicare, through Medicaid, um, through private pay. The not-for-profits and the government-owned nursing homes when they get that money, they put more of it into um, both the staffing, but also food, activities, etc. So that is an important indicator. There's obviously uh, less of a profit motive in a not-for-profit or in a government-owned facility. So that is borne out that we see that the, um, the not-for-profits, and, and I'll put them together just to make it easier, but when I refer to not-for-profit, including government-owned, that they tend to have higher quality. Again, not all of them. There is variation in both sectors, um, but that the not-for-profits tend to have a better care. Um, lastly, and I think this is really important, and one reason why we've been, you know, the impetus for doing this study is that despite the fact that the nursing home lobbyists complain every single day, both in Albany and in Washington, D.C., that they're losing money, they're losing money on, on Medicaid, they're losing money on this, um, they're operating on quote-unquote raises within margins. The for-profit sector in New York and nationally is growing, is that we're seeing more and more of these companies that are operating, again, for-profit, buying up nursing homes. Why would they be buying up nursing homes if nursing homes are such a bad investment? It just, it just doesn't make sense to us. So we looked at this, and we wanted to see, uh, let's compare nursing homes that are for-profit versus nursing homes that are not-for-profit, again, on some of the criteria that we just discussed and, and a couple of others. Um, I, I noted here a couple of headlines of the many that we include, some of them in the fuller report, but there are unfortunately a lot of them out there, and more are coming out, frankly, every day in New York and across the country. But here from the New York Times uh, 12 years ago, 
in 2007, in many nursing homes, more profit and less nursing homes. Ten years later, Kaiser Health News, care suffers as more nursing homes feed money into corporate webs. webs excuse me. We've seen some good reporting in New York. Um, the Buffalo News has just done an excellent series uh, looking at you know, for-profit nursing homes that came into that area and the, the repercussions of that for residents. And that, that repercussion, those repercussions, excuse me, continue to play out in very unfortunate ways with the, um, just last week, one of the big chains up there, or that had gone up there, um, just declared um, bankruptcy protection and they're closing one of their facilities. So I'm gonna present some of the highlights of the, of the um, study because I wanna allow some time for uh, questions and answers or comments at the end as well. So we looked at, you know, in the last study, we, you know, the last study that I talked about, we looked at staffing versus quality measures. Here I wanted to look at ownership versus total care staff. Um, so this is everyone, the CNAs, the RNs, and the LPNs. And what we found is that for for-profit nursing homes have about 20% lower total care staffing hours per resident per day than government and nonprofit facilities do. And therefore, because of the, uh, of the relationship between staffing and quality, the implication is that these facilities are likely to provide a lower quality of care. Again, this is overall, it's not, because specifically facilities can differ on a specific basis, and that's again why I keep on talking about looking at, you know, if you're interested in a specific facility, to, um, you, know, you can do that as well on our website. But here you see that the for-profits have about, you know, substantially lower staffing. So we looked specifically at RN care staff, uh, in addition to overall care staff. Why? Because study after study has shown that having an RN there um, makes an enormous difference in the quality and the safety of a nursing home. So we wanted to see, you know, what is the difference? And here you can see the difference is really profound. Government non-for-profit nursing homes provide on average close to double the amount of RN care staffing as a for-profit facility. Um, you know, the other thing to think about here is again with the profit motivation is that RNs are the most expensive of care staff. So it's quite often what I see, and this is an anecdotal observation of mine, when I look at nursing homes, that you know, a lot of nursing homes that are um, have a problem, either a reporter has called me up or a family member has called me up, et cetera, and I look it up on, on Nursing Home Compare, I'll see that they'll often have, um, not always, but often have low RN staffing. And you can see that here that that is a, um, something that is clearly pl playing out. So again, 20% lower staffing overall, but, but half, 50% lower staffing when it comes to RNs specifically. Next, we looked at substantiated complaints. So there's, I didn't include this in the, um, in the staffing, but I want to look at it in terms of the, uh, in the staffing study, but I want to look at it in terms of the ownership study. Uh, and I just want to, especially those of you who work with families or are a family member or a resident, nursing home residents and families or anyone else, anyone else who becomes aware of abuse, neglect, or unsafe conditions or substandard care can file a complaint with the New York State Department of Health. That's a federal requirement um, that they, they, you have that right to file. You can file anonymously with the state survey agency and again, the state survey agency for us is the New York State Department of Health. DOH is required to investigate every single complaint that they receive. I'll repeat that. 
the QOH is required to investigate every single complaint that they receive. Um, we hear, um, you know, across the country from people who are saying, oh, um, they called up their state hotline and the state hotline told them, oh, go to the ombudsman. You, sh you, should, you, should, you should ask the ombudsman to resolve that. Or that's not something that we handle. No. Anything that falls under a regulatory or legal statutory requirement, DOH has an obligation to invest, investigate, excuse me, in an appropriate manner. So if it is, if it is something that is serious, they have to get in there within a couple of days. If it's something that is not life-threatening or less serious, then they have more time or they may be able to do that investigation remotely. But they have to investigate every complaint. And that's why for those of you who are, again, residents or families or ombudsmen are working with them, we have a, a primer on our website with the quality of, of care standards. We have a lot of fact sheets. They all spell out what the regulation is and, and what the regulatory requirements are. And for any of those, if you see that your, um, your complaint is being pushed, pushed off because it's not something that the state agency wants to do, you can use that to say, yes, actually this falls within what the state agency is supposed to do. What I note here in Orange, I just want to spend a second focusing on, is that because the state, sur state surveys, the inspections, only take place about once a year, it is really important from our perspective that complaints are responded to in a rigorous manner. Um, why? Because we don't want to just have the nursing home safe for the four days that the Department of Health, or three days or five days, whatever it is, that DOH is in the facility. It's the state agency's responsibility to make sure that nursing homes are getting the care and the services that they need 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks out of the year. And one way, one important way in which they do that, because they're not in the facility 51 weeks out of the year, is through responding to complaints. I know when I talk to family members, oftentimes this is something that they get very frustrated about, and the same thing with ombudsman I speak to, that um, most, most um, complaints are not substantiated by DOH, and I know that is very frustrating. It is still really crucial, I think, to, um, to make a complaint, and if you're unhappy or unsatisfied, speak to your legislature, because that's important. Call up your legislator's office and tell them about the concern you have. And of course, um, call up and, and contact the ombudsman, uh, your local ombudsman or the state ombudsman as well, but um, getting to an agency and getting policymakers aware of what's going on is one of the ways in which we can make a difference both for our residents now and for residents in the future. So what do we find in terms of substantiated complaints? So again, we looked at the types of ownership. We figured that out whether they're for-profit or not-for-profit. Uh, for the for-profit, we further divided it up into chain ownership, as I mentioned before, that chain that, that bought up nursing homes uh, upstate that is now uh, in, you know, uh, which I'll call it, has now applied for bankruptcy protection. Other chains that are growing around New York has been something uh, that which, with which we're concerned. So we looked at all for profits, including everybody, and then we also looked at just chain ownership nursing homes and then the government nonprofit. What we found in terms of substantiated complaints is that for profit nursing homes have, on average, double substantiated complaints as government owned and nonprofit nursing homes. 
Uh, and it was actually a slight difference, uh, slightly lower for the chain ownership than for for profits as a whole, which I thought was interesting. But I think that that is something that's really significant because even though most complaints are not substantiated, the fact that twice as many are substantiated in a for-profit facility, that to me is also another indication, well, something, uh, it, it, it might be something pretty serious because there's so few substantiated complaints. So these are implications, again, it's not, certainly not going to every single nursing home, as I've said a number of times, but I just want to be clear, but we're really looking at what is going on systemically in New York. Uh, we again looked at antipsychotic drugging. So because it's such an important criteria, what are the differences between a for-profit and a not-for-profit facility in terms of antipsychotic drugging? So we found that overall for-profit nursing homes have just a slightly higher average antipsychotic drugging rate compared to the non-profit, as you can see here. However, for-profit chains have a much lower rate than both the for-profit than all for profit, excuse me, than for profits as a whole, uh, and for the not for profit. So that I thought was was really um, peculiar. We don't have a, I would say, a strong implication in terms of well, one is a better place than the other for uh, for you know in terms of antipsychotic drugging. And I guess you know what I the takeaway that I had. So you have a difference here of between 10.4 percent of for profit chains versus uh, you know 11. Point Three to 11.5 percent antipsychotic drugging uh, for the for-profit all and for the government. I hope it's not getting too complicated for people. So it's about you know one percent difference. So you know essentially what we're finding is this is a problem statewide. I just want to add before we move on is that these are the risk-adjusted rates. So when I, as I, you might recall, I said before the antipsychotic drugging is risk-adjusted. So there is the number of residents that are getting antipsychotic drugs in the facility, say the facility has 100 people, and um, so the risk-adjusted rate means that the number of residents who are getting antipsychotic drugs minus the number of residents who are getting these drugs who have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, Tourette's syndrome, or Huntington's disease. Um, that is, in actuality, for the population, about 1.5%. However, the the actual distinction uh, in the numbers that we see in nursing homes is more like 5%. So, in fact, the, the New York State drugging rate, I think, is about 165 or 17% right now because a lot of those residents, are they're getting the drugs, but they are diagnosed with schizophrenia. This is an important issue because... Um, because of that risk adjustment and that incentive, we are seeing now people being given a diagnosis of schizophrenia when they're in their 80s or 90s or 100, when they don't really have a clinical schizophrenia, but it was a way, unfortunately, for the nursing home to essentially hide that resident in their rate. So I, again, I know that's kind of complicated to get around, and, and uh, I'm sorry about that, but the what we're seeing essentially is that there is um, we are seeing some fraudulent behavior, frankly, of people being given a diagnosis of schizophrenia when it's not uh, appropriate so that the facility can have um, you know, a lower risk-adjusted rate. And we've seen that in some statement of deficiencies. It's not just me making it up. We have seen that in um, higher rates 
um, nationally of people being given, uh, you know, or some indication of people being given diagnoses later in life of schizophrenia when it's highly unlikely that someone will first um, have, you know, have the symptoms of schizophrenia when they're very old. It usually happens when someone is younger. So just some things to look out for. I, there's something called dementia-related psychosis. That's not schizophrenia, and that's not something for which antipsychotic drugs are clinically indicated, period, just to get back to that. So I hope that's clear. We also looked at pressure ulcers, of, of course, another important indicator of quality of care. As I mentioned earlier, New York is one of the worst states in the country. We're in the bottom 10 in respect to keeping our residents free from pressure ulcers. Uh, and we found here that on average, for-profit nursing homes have about 20% higher rate of pressure ulcers than government or non-profit nursing homes. Uh, so some conclusions and recommendations. One is that we found that nursing home ownership matters. Uh, for the majority of the criteria, these are some, we, we spoke about some of them here, all of them are in the study that are on our website. We found that um, non-profit, non-profit, excuse me, government-owned nursing homes tended to perform better on the criteria than did for-profit providers. Uh, we really encourage people on the local and the state level to be, and as well as the, you know, the non-profit nursing homes, to be thinking about that mission. I mean, we know so many counties in New York have sold their nursing home, and others are thinking about selling their nursing home. Is that the um, uh, providing nursing home care is an important service for the community, uh, whether it's you know, something run by, by the church or something run by a other religious organization or something run by, by the county. And I think it, it shows that this is an important investment, and I worry that we're going to be abandoning people to, um, to you know, for-profit enterprises that may not have the uh, ability or the interest to care for people who have a need for nursing home care in the future. Uh, so I want to provide, I mentioned that some of the information that we have, and I just want to talk about that quickly, and then I'm going to open it up for a couple of questions. So this is Nursing Hall 411. This is our website. As you can see here on the left-hand side, we have a section just dedicated to LTC in, in New York State. This is the page, and on the right-hand side, where the, the top button on, on the right-hand side is a 2019 assessment of New York State nursing home staffing and quality. So you can see the full report there. We have a couple of policy briefs and some uh, and the data that I'm going to talk about next. So this is the searchable file on all New York State nursing homes. You can download it. As you see on the left-hand side, we have the provider name in alphabetical order, their address, their county name, their city their ownership type, um, the number of residents that, that they have um, on, you know, on average, their health inspection rating, substantiated complaints, uh, number of fines and penalties, staffing, uh, antipsychotic drugging rate, et cetera. So you can see all that information. Uh, it's available there. We just updated, uh, did an update on that a couple of weeks ago. So that information is there. And you can easily, if you just click on one of these arrows here on the top, you can actually just select the county. So if you're in, say, Nassau County, you can just select for Nassau and just download those nursing homes if you're interested in what's going on in Nassau County. Or you can search for your specific nursing homes. Nursing homes, excuse me. 
I also just wanted to quickly mention that we put out a special edition of the Elder Justice No Harm Newsletter. It's something that we publish every month. This is a special New York State edition. Essentially what we do is we look at those deficiency statements when a nursing home is cited after it's been inspected and we look at what's called a no harm deficiency. Deficiencies which it was a healthcare violation was found but no harm. The, the, it was classified as not causing a, any resident harm. Here we have for example, just looking quickly, the Center for Nursing and Rehab in, in King County. It was a five-star facility that failed to adequately meet multiple standards of care contributing to a resident's death and it was found to be no harm. Here's the Riverside, a nursing home where I've been in uh, several times. Two-star facility failed to develop a care plan for addressing the resident's loss of teeth. The assistant director of nursing noted that a review of the care plan must have been missed. No harm. There was no harm that, I mean, could you imagine if, if um, you had tooth loss and, and no one helped you, no one helped you get dentures, no one helped you to address any dental issues, and it was just considered to be, oh, that's not any harm. That, to me, I would obviously, uh, and I think most of the people would um, consider that to be harm. Uh, here, if you would like to receive the newsletter or other updates, please join us, nursing411.org forward slash join. Uh, our next program is going to be on the new federal nursing home payment system that's coming into effect in just a couple of weeks. So it'll be our October program, and it's actually starting in October, October 15th at 1 p.m. And I thank you all very much for joining us today. Uh, I appreciate it. I hope that this is useful information. Again, it's all available on our website. If you have any questions, any comments, shoot me an email, richard at ltccc.org. I'm very interested in hearing from you. You can also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash ltccc, etc. If you're an ombudsman uh, in New York State, there's a survey monkey that you could please fill out. This PowerPoint is on our website, so you can go to the PowerPoint, go to the last page, and click on that survey monkey or copy it and paste it into your URL. It's a very quick survey, and we will let your um, your supervisor know if you are um, that you that you participated in the program. And then, lastly, for family members in New York State, I strongly recommend that you connect with the Alliance of New York Family Councils. We're actually having a uh, meeting tonight, which you could um, participate in by phone www.a n as in Nancy, y is in youth, f as in Frank, c as in coalition.org, a n y f c.org. Uh, it's really a terrific organization. Together we can, um, I, I think we could really make a difference. I, I think family members are just so important. So again, thank you very much for participating. Um, Sarah, do you want to, is any, were there any questions you want to unmute yourself? If not, okay. I'll unmute everybody. There is one question and a couple of comments. Okay, thanks. So the one question is, the staffing data is auditable. Does CMS or New York State Department of Health audit that data? Um, as far as I know, the um, uh, Department of Health does not, but that's certainly something that someone could ask the Department of Health. Uh, if they were interested, I mean, I think it's, the reason why I say that, I think it's helpful for people, for DOH to know that people are interested and concerned, uh, and, and to hear from them. So that, that is certainly a good idea. The CMS, as I understand it, has done some audits of these data. So not, not every single nursing home report is audited by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I was afraid that there'd be no auditing, but in fact, we've been told that there has been some auditing of those data, which is good. 
Okay. The comment is in Western New York, not only are for-profits continuing to buy up not-for-profit nursing homes, they are paying higher prices. The price was in the range of $40,000 per bed five or so years ago. More recent deals have paid $100,000 per bed. Wow. That's very good. Thank you for sharing that. Very good. Um, get them started. Richard, can I add one more thing? The slides are up on our website. My apologies for the person who had asked earlier. They yeah, yeah no, I put, them, I put them up before, um, before I joined. Yeah, so if you go to our website, www.nursinghome401.org, it's the top thing up there, and the next thing should be the comments on the um, Trump administration um, nursing home requirements proposal. So that's up there. We also have a, um, for those of you who are still on, and I can't, it's hard for me to see, uh, we also recently came out with a um, an alert on poorly performing nursing homes in New York to which we just added an interactive map. It's really, um, it's really quite neat. So maybe we'll talk about that in a future program, but uh, thanks to our fellow Eric for putting that together. And um, so we're coming out with some very interesting stuff, I think, and things that will be useful for everybody. Um, any questions, just press star six. We can hang on for a few minutes. Okay. Uh, I thank everyone for joining us today. And I look forward to speaking with you next month.